Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. We have a special from Sadie and Please welcome Olivia. Sadie and Olivia. Thank you, ladies. Appreciate that so much. Thank you. That's so good. <clears throat> Be okay if he came back right now, wouldn't it? 
all this work I've done, this message, if he can wait until it's over, that would be even better. So, now, you know what? We started about uh, a few weeks ago, eight or, eight or nine, ten weeks ago, uh, talking about the names of God. And we covered Elohim, which is the plural name of God, first name of God revealed in the scriptures, fourth word of the book of Genesis, for chapter 1. Uh, and we talked about uh, that uh, plural name being indicative of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But then we went to Jehovah, which is the covenant, relational, personal name of, of God and his relationship to his people. It is often uh, in scriptures uh, indicated with the English, I am which is what God told Moses to reveal him, his, his God as, the great I am. And what Jesus said in the garden uh, as they were taking him prisoner and they asked for Jesus and he said, I am, and they fell down backwards. That's the powerful covenant relational name of God. Then we talked about Jehovah Jireh and the incredible story of Isaac um, and his son Abram, his father Abram taking him to the Mount Moriah and offering him as a sacrifice in obedience to God. And when he raised his hand with the knife, and if that sounds all foreign and very strange, it, it is, uh, but God stayed his hand. And then there was a ram provided, and that ram became the sacrifice, and that became a type of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins. He was a substitute. Adonai then was the next name, owner and master. We are servants, we are slaves. He said, I don't want to be a slave. You don't have a choice. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to the Savior. Choose your slave. Uh -huh. Choose who you want to be the slave to. In Exodus, we have Jehovah <coughs> Rapha, which is God heals, because God healed the waters at Marah. Then we have Jehovah Nisi, God is our banner, because God fights our battles. And believe it or not, we are in a war. We're not in a shooting war like Ukraine and Russia are right now, but we're ever in every bit as much a real war. It is a spiritual warfare, and that's what the armor is about in Ephesians chapter 6. Two weeks ago in Leviticus, we talked about Jehovah Mkedesh, which means God sanctifies. So God sets us apart. He sets us apart from the world and sets us apart unto himself. Last Sunday uh, on Palm Sunday, we preached on the paradoxes of Palm Sunday. The bread of life hungered, the, and Christ hungered as a man but fed the multitudes. The water, everlasting water of life thirsted. Jesus was weary, but he is our rest. Our Lord prayed, but he hears our prayers. <clears throat> the Savior was sold for 30 pieces of silver, but he is our Redeemer. The Lamb of God was led to the slaughter, but is our Good Shepherd. And by dying, the Son of God defeated death. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on the, the foal of a donkey that had never been ridden before. <clears throat> the donkey, a symbol of peace, whereas had he ridden in on a horseback, it would have been a declaration of war when a king rode the horse. But he was riding the, foals, the donkey's foal, as prophesied by Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. But and you remember they took their, their garments off, put them on the donkey so it made it softer for the king. They put their garments and palm fronds on the roads so that it was smooth and leveled, filling in all the potholes uh, so that the king would have a smooth ride as he rode through Jerusalem. He was at the pinnacle of his popularity and acceptance right then. But how quickly all that changed. He went from hero to zero 
in no time at all. Bring my mic down just a little bit, please, because I don't want to hurt anybody's ears here. So on Palm Sunday, here's what happened. Jesus entered Jerusalem to the fanfare mentioned above. He defended the cries of the people. When the people began crying out, Hosanna, the son of David, they were, they were fully attesting to the fact that this was a special individual. This was a king of kings. This was a, uh, the, the promised Messiah. This was the anointed one. And the Jewish crowd, the Jewish religious crowd, rebuked him for allowing his disciples to say that. And Jesus' answer unto them was, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. If, if these people uh, didn't do so, didn't praise me, even an inanimate object like a stone would cry out and declare that I am God to the glory of God the Father. Then Jesus wept over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. The Bible says, as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city of Ed, ahead, he began to weep. His heart was broken. He said, how I wish that all of you today would understand the way to peace, but now it's too late. Peace is hidden from your eyes because something awful was about to happen. He knew about Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. He knew that the exact time of the coming of Messiah was pinpointed in Daniel's prophecy. And one of the verses in verse 26, after this series of 62 sets of seven, which is a study on itself, the Bible says, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing appearing to have accomplished nothing. And that's exactly, that's a prophecy about what was about to happen. Jesus was going to be killed. The disciples were going to be scattered because they thought it's over now. This promised kingdom's not going to happen. Our king died. Have you ever heard that song, he's alive, he's alive, uh, and I can't remember it beyond that, and be thankful because if I started singing, it would clear the house out in a hurry. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is, that uh, that he is alive and that he knew that he would die. And, and Peter in that song is singing and says, I saw him die. I know it's over. I know it's, not, it's come to nothing. All of this for the last three years is nothing. It's all vain now because our Savior, the promised one, is dead. What he didn't know yet was that he had risen from the dead like he said he would. So, uh, so then in this too, in the last part of this, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Jesus was weeping and crying for his chosen people because he knew that in the last days that they would be encircled, as Luke says in, in Luke chapter 19, that their enemies will build ramparts against us and encircle us and close in from every side, and they will crush you, Luke's gospel says, to the ground, with your children, with you, your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. And the temple in 70 AD was deconstructed, was absolutely torn down. It was not one stone left upon another in fulfillment of that prophetic utterance by Luke and by Daniel. Then Jesus, at the end of Palm Sunday, returns to Bethany for the night. That was day one. On Monday, Jesus performed his 24th miracle, a really unusual one. I mean, I, you know, I, I love the miracles. I, we preached a series a few years ago on the miracles uh, of Christ, and, you know, healing blind people, people who've never been able to see in their lives, and, and he would touch them, sometimes anoint them with, with spittle and with dirt mixed together, making a clay, anointing the eyes, not a medically uh, recognized way of doing things, I promise you, but then when they washed that away, people could see. 
He could heal the lame, people who had never walked before. All of a sudden, take up your bed and walk, and they would take up their bed and walk. He would heal people from leprosy, like, uh, like Naaman in the Old Testament, like many in the New Testament, 10 at one time, healed from leprosy, whereas their skin was, was coming apart and oozing with sores and perhaps even digits removed from their hands and, and, and feet, and yet uh, they walked away with skin as new, as new as a newborn baby's skin. He, uh, wonderful miracle, but this is an unusual one. He walks by a fig tree. He sees lots of, lots of leaves on it, and that's an indication generally that there's fruit on it. It's, it's ready to be partaken of, and he goes over the tree, and there's no fruit. And Jesus does something very unusual. He curses the fig tree. He pronounces a curse on it, and that curse is this. Uh, he said, may you never bear fruit again. That's the curse. May you never bear fruit again. And immediately, this is part of the miracle, immediately the fig tree dried up. It withered up. Now with this act, you say, well, what's the significance of this? With this one single act, he was basically saying that the, the, the privilege that is yours, Israel, because of your fruitlessness is being taken away. You look like you're godly. You look like you're religious, but you have no fruit whatsoever. And may this be a word of caution to every one of us who appear to be religious, maybe appear to sound uh, like we're Christian, and yet have no fruit. If there is no fruit, then something's wrong with the root. Something's wrong with the plant. Something's wrong with the person who does not bear fruit for the glory of God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. So this became, this fig tree withered immediately became a type of Israel. And then Jesus, next of all, on, on this Monday, cleans out the temple for the second time. I've been to Bible college. I've been preaching for 50 years. I did not realize there were two cleansings. I thought there was one cleansing reported in each of the Gospels. But he began his ministry in John chapter 2 and verse 16 when he said, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. But now again in Matthew 21, uh, three years almost later, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, there was all kinds of corruption involved. People would, these priests would sell the same animal to different people over and over and over and over, making merchandise in the house of God. They wouldn't be concerned about whether they had blemishes or whether they had flaws, as the, the Mosaic law prescribed. They would sell inferior animals, and there was just all kinds of corruption involved. And so he knocked over the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he said to them, the scriptures declare... My temple shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. So he did it again. His earthly ministry was coming to an end, but three years of performing miracles, three years of preaching and teaching and pleading with the nation of Israel, the religious crowd had not changed. He then, after that, he does do some other miracles. He heals the blind. He heals the lame. He receives worship from children. In Matthew 21, 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. The Bible says he healed them. The leading priests and teachers of the religious law saw that uh, these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. Little children, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders, religious leaders, were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures, he said, for they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. And then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight again. 
On Tuesday, it was, a, it was an insanely busy day. There are over 30 different things that take place, over 30 different events that take place. I can't even go into all. Can you imagine a preacher with a 30-point message just, just on Tuesday? Some of you say, yeah, I can. I've been here before. I can. Yeah. Uh, so he, commanded, he commented to the disciples on the withered tree, and he talks about having faith. And he says, if you have faith, you can do what I've done. In fact, he says, you can do better. You can say to this mountain, be you cast into the sea, and it will be so, because such uh, so important is faith. May, may you have faith for everything you do, and you will receive it. And then Jesus was challenged again by the Pharisees. Do you see a pattern here? Every time he turned around, he was being challenged. Every time he turned around, he was being corrected, rebuked by the religious crowd. And so now they say, listen, by what authority do you do these miracles? Who, whose power do you have? Some were saying he had the power of the devil behind him. Whose power do you do these miracles? And he said, well, let me ask you a question first. Referring to John the Baptist said, uh, with John the Baptist, uh, where did his power come from? Was it heavenly or was it merely human. The religious crowd began talking it over, said, if we say it's human, we're going to be in trouble with the people because the people had great regard for John the Baptist. So they said, we don't know where his power came from. Jesus said, well, I'm not going to tell you where my power comes from either. And then he teaches two parables, the parable of the man who had two sons. He went to the two sons and he said to one of them, he said, I want you to go work the fields for me. And his son said, no, I don't want to. And, and later on, though, he did. And then he went to the second one, and he said, I want you to work the fields. And the second son said, okay, Dad, I'll do it. And then he didn't go. And Jesus taught those parables, saying it's important uh, what you do, not what necessarily you say at first. It's, not the, 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 it's the performance, not the promise that counts. It's doing what you said you're going to do that's important. What follows are more parables, more confrontations by not only the Pharisees, but the Sadducees and the Herodians, which was a political party, and he is asked what the greatest commandment is. You remember that? What is the greatest command? There's, all, there's the Ten Commandments, obviously, and there are hundreds of other commands in the Word of God. So what is the greatest of all? If you had to boil it down, Jesus, to one commandment is the greatest one, which would it be? And he said, without even blinking an eye, without thinking, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he volunteered something else. He said, the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. I wonder if we love God with that kind of love, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I wonder if we love God the way that Jesus was talking about here. I wonder if we love people like our neighbors, like we would love ourselves. It's important that we demonstrate these two most important of all commandments in the Word of God. Tuesday afternoon, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. You've read Matthew chapter 24, chapter 25, where he goes into the great prophetic themes. He talks about the end times. He talks about what's going to happen to Israel. And he talks about the judgment that's going to fall again. Also on Tuesday, closing out the day, he preached some more. He wept over Jerusalem again. And then he made note of something very that most of us would maybe overlook. He noticed a widow lady, and she had two mites. I've got it home. I've got, I should have brought it. I've got a coin that somebody told me was a mite. I don't know if it is or not. 
I got it in the Holy Land, and you know, sometimes, you ever, have you been to the Holy Land? How many have been to the Holy Land? It's like you go to a place, and you say, this is where Jesus walked, and it says, is this exactly where? Well, if it's not this spot, it's some spot very much like this one. Is this the tomb he was born in? Well, if, we, if, if it's not this tomb, it's one like this, very much like this. So, I don't know, this may not be the real mite. It may be one very much like it. I don't know. But she cast in two mites in the treasury, and Jesus said she has given more than anyone else because she gave all that she had and then he retired for the day it was a full day on Wednesday very little happened at first I thought Wednesday was kind of um, irrelevant to this week um, because I began looking around what did he do on Wednesday what were his activities where did he go what do you think he did and more importantly what would you do if you knew your time on earth would be over in two days. What would you do? Kind of a haunting question, really. Maybe this was a day of contemplation for him. Maybe it was a day of, no doubt it was a day of prayer because every day was a day of prayer for him. But there are three things that possibly happened on Wednesday, and that is Jesus tells his disciples he would die on Passover by crucifixion. He tells them that in Matthew chapter 26. He also tells them the religious leaders, uh, or maybe the second thing that would happen is that the religious leaders would plot to kill Jesus. And the third thing was, in joint conjunction with that, Judas's betrayal contract was stricken, and he was paid 30 pieces of silver to deliver Jesus into their hands. What would you do if you knew you had two, two days to live and that was it? Let me ask you a follow-up question to that. Why don't we live like that every day? as if this is our last day. Because the fact is, one of these days will be our last day on earth, one way or the other. We'll either be taken home to be with the Lord, or the Lord will come back. I prefer the second way. I really would prefer to hear the trumpet sound, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ rise, and be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, lose about 35, 40 pounds in an instant of time. Take my contacts out. Take my hearing aids out. I, I was talking to a friend uh, who's getting ready to move from uh, Texas to Florida. He's a former missionary friend. In fact, he's been here, I think, several years ago. But uh, I said, well, how's it going with the movie? He said, well, we're packing everything up. He said, we're going we're gonna to box it up, and then someone's going to pick it up. And, and he said, I thought about the pod thing, but I, I decided to have a truck, so the truck's going to come move them. I, I said, well, everything going okay? He said, well, i got a little problem. He said, my dog... So I have a little problems with him. He's really old, and his hearing's not what it used to be, and his eyesight's not very good, and he's got arthritis. And I thought, sounds like me. <laughs> You're not going to leave him behind, are you? <laughs> and I think he is. So that was Wednesday. On Thursday, Jesus prepared for the Passover with his disciples in Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 19. said, The first day of the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where do you want us to go that we can prepare to eat the Passover? And he said to them, Go into the city to such and such a man. Say to him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed him, and they made ready the Passover. Now again, you don't believe in supernatural just just stop and think about this for a minute they said where do you want us to have the passover he says go to town you'll run into this guy tell him the we're going to come to his house for passover 
Now, how would that go, guys, with your wife? I just want, I just want you to know. How would that work out if, some, if your husband came home and said, hey, there's about a dozen people coming over here in a little while. They're going to have Passover with us. What? You didn't give me any time to get ready. What's the deal with that? So, so Jesus tells him, and, and the guy says, okay, fine. And he goes and makes ready. It's kind of like when Jesus was getting ready to ride into Jerusalem, right? And, and, and they go and they start taking this donkey and her foal. And someone says, what are you doing? And he said, well, the Lord has need of them. They said, oh, okay, go ahead. This is supernatural stuff. This is God doing things in an orderly way. And so the events of the upper room transpired. He entered the upper room. He, he washed the disciples' feet. I saw a little a meme on the internet on, on Facebook. It's like, okay, if you had two days to live now, what would you do? And I'm thinking, oh man, I don't. I'd sit out with my family and I'd tell them how much I love them. I'd I'd call my church people, to tell them how much I enjoyed being their pastor and, and love them and appreciate them. And I, I'm, I'm trying to think of what are the things, the big things that I would do. I promise you, it would not come into my mind to say, could I wash your feet today? I promise you it wouldn't, but it's what Jesus did because he's trying to show us we're to be a servant to each other. We're to serve each other. We're, we're, we're not to be served. We're to serve each other. And he took the basin of water and he took the towel, wrapped it around and girded it around himself, and he went to the disciples and began washing their feet. He came to the apostle Peter. I love Peter. He's such a mess. And Peter says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, okay, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part in my ministry. Peter said, oh, in that case, give me a bath. <laughs> Jesus said, you don't need a bath. You're washed. He's talking about you're saved, you're righteous, but your feet are dirty just from walking through this life, walking the way in this world. And so he went ahead and washed his feet. He prayed. He announced his betrayal. He initiated the Lord's Supper. He made several predictions. He talked about heaven. They sang a hymn. They left the room. So in this, in this praying, he said, if it's possible, when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But the key part of that prayer is, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So it's okay to pray for things that you want and things that you need and things that you would like to work out a certain way, but always, folks, always condition that prayer upon, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Oh, by the way, while he was praying, what were the disciples doing? They were sleeping. They were sleeping. I don't feel so bad. When people sleep in my service, they went to sleep when Jesus was talking, you know, so it's not too bad. His disciples slept, and, and, and while he was praying, he sweat droplets of blood mixed with water, mixed with the perspiration, and it fell to the ground. The, the, this extreme stress he was under, this agony he was under, caused capillaries in his skin to break. And when those capillaries would break, the blood would mix with perspiration and drip down his cheeks and down into the ground. And, and, and he began to sweat drops of blood, as it were. One of these pageants we had years ago. Um, Peter, where are you? Huh? Is he in the, uh, out in the patio? Peter, you in the patio? Hi, buddy. Peter's... Uh, was a big old Marine, and 
in one of the scenes when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating, as it were, droplets of blood, the angel, Peter, came in, Angelica, and put his wing up over him. And I'm telling you, I lost it. An angel tended to him. He prayed his high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. In that high priestly prayer, he prayed for every one of us. He prayed for every single one of us. Check it out. See if it's not true. And then enter Judas and the Jewish priests and the elders and the temple guards into the garden. And Judas comes over to that Savior, that one that he had been with for three years, the one he had sat and heard speak, the one that he had seen perform miracle after miracle after miracle, the one who was above reproach and without spot, without blemish, never having one time sinned. And he planted a kiss on his cheek and in doing that betrayed him. The guards asked for Jesus, and he said, I am, and they fell backwards to the ground. He is, again, that title, Jehovah God, or Yehovah, Yehovah God. And then they seized Jesus, and then Peter. Did I tell you I like Peter? Yeah, he draws his sword out and lops off one of the guards' ears. Clean off. You say, man, that's really good aim. He chopped the ear off. No, he was aiming for the center of the guy's head. He, I'm sure of that. But he cut the guy's ear off. And then Jesus, as his last miracle in his earthly ministry, healed the servant, healed the guard, put the ear back on. No more of this. And he healed him. Then came Friday. Jesus is subjected to more than one unjust, illegal, unfair trials. Peter, sitting outside the gates, denies Jesus three times, as was prophesied. Jesus is mocked by the Roman guards, a crown of thorns, a crown with thorns two or three inches long were forced down on his scalp and caused bleeding. His beard was plucked out by handfuls. He was beaten with a rod. His, he, he, before all of that, he had been beaten with a cat of nine tails, which is a whip, a short whip with long leather strands that have pieces of glass, pieces of rock, pieces of bone embedded in the ends. And oftentimes when they would hit that, uh, the back of that offender, it would grab into his flesh and rip out pieces of flesh, literally. They limited the number of strokes to 39. Oftentimes people would die under the barbarous beating with the cat of nine tails. And then he carries his cross to Calvary, the place of the skull. They position him on the wood and they nail his hands and they nail his feet. And they nail it in such a way that if he pushes up with his feet, he can get a breath and hold it and then release it and slump back down again because the pain from his feet would be excruciating. And he would push up again to get another breath, and then he would slump down again. Such was the custom of crucifixion, just so bad. Crucified between malefactors, two of them, two thieves, two, uh, two criminals of some kind. And Jesus cries out, among other things, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so it's so appropriately been said by preachers, many, many preachers, 
The biggest price Christ paid was not the physical suffering that he endured. The biggest price he paid was for the only time in all of eternity being separated from his heavenly Father. Because he took upon him your sins and my sins. Every disgusting, evil thing I've ever said, thought, or done. Every sinful place I've ever been, Jesus took them upon himself. And so God, being a holy God, could not look upon sin, so he turned, as it were, turned his back on his only begotten son. And then Jesus dismisses his spirit. By the way, I want you to notice, he was weakened by the crown, by the, the, the whipping with the, the cat of nine tails. He was uh, weakened by all the dehydration, the intense stress that he'd been under, all the stuff that was going on. But no one took his life from him. The Bible says he laid it down himself. And Jesus dismissed his spirit. We don't have that opportunity or ability. When our time comes and it's some kind of a complication medically or whatever, then we just we can't take another breath. The blood, the heart won't beat anymore. Something happens. But with him, he determined when everything was complete and when everything was fulfilled and when it was, he dismissed his spirit. And he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's borrowed tomb. You ever thought about why it was a borrowed tomb? Because he didn't need it very long. He's just going to need it for three days. On Saturday, this is interesting to me. On Saturday, the Pharisees go to Pilate, who unjustly let them crucify him. The Pharisees go to Pilate, and they said, he said something about rising from the dead on the third day. Pilate, you need to seal the tomb. You need to station Roman soldiers there. Isn't it sad that the only ones who seem to remember that Jesus promised to rise from the dead were his enemies? I mean, the disciples all fled, right? Peter denied him three times. The, rest, the disciples took off. They, uh, they were nowhere to be found. And here are the, here's the religious crowd that condemned him falsely, and they're saying... He promised he'd come back from the dead. You need to seal the tomb. Pilate then assigns the task of securing the tomb to the Jewish temple guards, and the Pharisees seal the tomb and station their guard. And then came Sunday. Then came Sunday, and there was a great earthquake, bigger than 4.8. That's what we had the other day. It's like someone called me and said, oh, did you guys have an earthquake? Yeah, I think it's what it was. Either that or the vibrator's on in my recliner. I'm not sure which it is, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, it was 4.8. This, this was a great earthquake, and he rose from the dead. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark do domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. The angel descended from heaven and rolled the stone away. By the way, he didn't roll the stone away so Jesus could get out. 
he rolled the stone away so that we could see that the tomb was empty and the grave clothes were folded and no one was in the tomb any longer. The guards were at first frozen with fear and then fled and the witnesses come into play. Now, folks, I, people say, you know, he didn't really rise from the dead, uh, but uh, there are 10 different post-resurrection appearances. First, there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary in John chapter 20. Then there were Peter and John who ran to the tomb in John chapter 20. Then there were three women in Matthew chapter 28 who were coming to anoint the body with spices and they verified the tomb was empty. And then there were the two disciples on the Emmaus road who Jesus spoke with, whose hearts did burn within them as they spoke to Jesus. And then there was Simon Peter in Luke chapter 24. And then there was the 10 of the disciples in the upper room in Luke chapter 24. And then there were the 11 disciples because now Thomas is there. Thomas wasn't there at first, but now he's there. And, and, and he sees that Christ, in fact, is risen from the dead. And then there was the shore at the Sea of Tiberias. And then there were over 500 brothers at one time and the giving of the Great Commission on Mount Tabor, and twice more he appeared to his disciples. For 40 days, these appearances went on, and Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and he is the overcomer, according to John 16, and he is the first fruits from the dead, and he is the firstborn from the dead, and he is the first begotten of the dead, and Jesus is and was and evermore shall be. I am Alpha, he says, and Omega, the A and Z. I am the beginning and the end, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. And that was some week. That was the most holy week of all. And all that was done because of this incredible love that the Son of God has for you and for me. How could we possibly say no to that kind of love? How could we possibly turn him away when he knocks on our heart's door? And yet I have to ask the question, do you know him? Do you really, really know him is he your personal savior redeemer substitute lord and master and one last question which sinner are you the one who believed or the one who didn't the one who believed or the one who didn't today could be the day you see when that one sinner hanging on one side of Christ said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And something happened to that guy. He was made a new creation. Oh, wait a minute. He didn't get baptized. You don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. Really? Really? Well, he didn't join a church. You don't have to join a church to go to heaven. Really? Really? I believe in church. I think you ought to go to church. But he believed. And that's what you need. Have you done that? Do you believe in him that way? Now, someone said, I saw this track years ago. It said, missing heaven by 18 inches. How do you miss heaven by 18 inches? The distance from here to here. Believing with your head, but not with your heart. 
How do you believe with your heart? You put your full faith and trust in him. You came in this morning. I assume you came in and sat down. I don't assume you kind of checked the chair, see if, see if it's going to hold you. Let me see. Is that, is that solid enough? It seems solid enough. You just came in, you sat down, and the chair held you up. I'm going to promise you something. There may be a chair sometime that you sit on that doesn't hold you up, but never is Jesus going to fail you when you put your faith and trust and confidence in him. And I'm not asking you to join the church. I'm asking you to join Jesus. I'm asking you to open up your heart and let him come into your life in a very real way. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. Very important time. Ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. And if you're here this morning, and if you'd like to make sure that this Jesus, this Christ, this one who's the son of God, son of David, this one who lived a perfect life, was crucified in your place and rose again from the dead. If you want to make sure he's your Savior and he's your God, I want you to pray something like this. You can pray right where you are. You can pray out loud. You can pray in your heart. Either way, it's okay with me. It doesn't matter. But I want you to pray this prayer and mean it with all your heart. Say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Lord, I know I'm going to die someday because the wages of sin is death, it says in your word. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me because the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He proved his Lord, love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Lord, I know I'm, I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to die. I believe Jesus died for me. So now I ask you, God, to be my Savior, to be my Lord, to be my God. Forgive me of my sinfulness. Forgive me of my wickedness. God, make me a new creature in Christ by grace through faith right now with every head bowed. If you just now prayed that prayer, you sincere and you meant it. I'm not going to embarrass you. Just raise your hand up. Just raise your hand up real high. Preacher, I just prayed that prayer. God bless you. Keep it up for just a moment. Others, God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else? And yes, God bless you. God loves you. Anybody else? Just want to pray for you. I won't mention your name. Yes, God bless you in the very back. Thank you. God bless you right down here. And yes, right over there. Right here on the aisle also. Thank you. Anyone else along with these? You want to be included in this prayer. Father, for those who prayed, this most important prayer you can ever pray as far as I know. Asking Christ to be their Lord and Savior. May you give them the assurance that you love them, that you died for them, that you rose again for them, and that you will forgive them because of their faith in you. Father, change their lives radically for good and for God, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'll tell you what, we're glad that you're here, glad to have you in the house of God today, and thank you for celebrating Easter with us. Here's what we're going to do. Now, those of you that prayed that prayer, whether you raised your hand or not, on the table right by the sound booth, uh, and then also in the bookcase over by the door in the corner, uh, right by the mirror, there's some Because I'm Saved booklets. Take those with you and, and read those, and it's got a fill-in-the-blank thing, and if I can help you at all, please let me know. Let's stand together, and if you have children here, uh, we need you to pick them up. We're, we're going to hold the 
uh, egg hunt until all the kids are on the perimeter out there and they've got all the eggs spotted that they wanted. Pat, I'm going to ask you to go back there because there are special eggs, and if you find a special egg with a smiley face on it, if you go see Miss Pat, she's got something special to give you. So she'll be back there taking care of that. If we can be of any help to any of you here, I'm just so thrilled. It's good to have, I don't know how many are out on the patio, but this is a full house in here. We thank God for that. Father, thank you for loving us and blessing us. Thank you for all that you've done for us today, all that you've done for us every day. And Lord, we pray for services next week because every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday we celebrate the risen Savior. And Father, in a world that is right now torn by war, We'll be studying Jehovah Shalom. God, you are our peace. You give us peace that passes all understanding. So thank you for it. Bless us and dismiss us with our love. Give the kids a good time outside. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being in God's house today. Have a happy Christmas. Easter. Not Christmas, Easter. <laughs>